encourage you to turn again to Luke 11 tonight, verses 37 through 54. Luke 11, 37 through 54. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you, lawyers, as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Father, we pray tonight that we wouldn't leave like the scribes and the Pharisees, hostile to what your word says and to what it may say to us. But help us to leave, Father, glad to walk in the light of your truth, even if in walking in the light it shows us our blemishes and our failings. And in those blemishes and failings, let us finish again tonight at the foot of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we should observe right off the top from these verses that this series of woes that Jesus pronounces are directed towards religious people. Note that well. Jesus could have said, Woe to you doctors and politicians who convince young women that it's normal to exterminate their unborn children. He could have said, Woe to you principals and boards of education who put books like Heather Has Two Mommies in the hands of first graders. He could have said, Woe to you international businessmen who treat 14-year-old girls from Southeast Asia as though they were barrels of oil or, or pallets of imported fruit. Jesus could have spoken woe to people like that. And if you read the Bible with open eyes, you'll find that sometimes he does speak woe to people like that. But here, in the latter third of Luke chapter 11, Jesus 
megaphone was directed not at the slime balls that are out in the world, but at religious people. The megaphone here is directed towards people, frankly, like us, toward the serious religious folks, toward the people who are doing all the religious stuff, toward the Wednesday night crowd, if you will. Now, of course, I hope and I trust that most of us are not as far down the road of hypocrisy as these Pharisees and lawyers were. But it is instructive, I think, nonetheless, to realize that we are the sort of people who are most prone to being like the Pharisees were and to doing what these lawyers did. To be a part of the religious crowd that we're a part of comes with peculiar dangers. That's one of the lessons of this passage. And that's precisely why Jesus often directed his most harsh criticisms not towards the world system, but towards hypocritical churchgoers. Churchgoers is what we would call them hypocritical synagogue goers in his day. And there's, of course, a lesson in that. Namely, that sometimes we need to put our megaphones down for long enough to actually allow us to hear what Jesus may be shouting through his megaphone to us. That is to say, sometimes we need to stop decrying the sins of the world so much and to realize that we too may need to hear some words of woe. Or to use a more famous metaphor, we need to learn to take the wood chips out of our own eyes before we go gouging our fingernails into everyone else's. So yes, there is a time for pronouncing woe upon the world culture, and there's plenty of woe to go around outside of these doors. But there is also a time for having woe pronounced by Jesus upon our religious culture. And this passage does just that, and it should therefore give reason for pause among religious folks like us. And it all started there in verse um, 37 with what we might call a hygiene faux pas. That's at least what we would think of verses 37 and 38 being. Jesus was invited to this man's house for lunch and he sat down to eat without washing his hands. And perhaps had we been there with our 21st century mindsets, we might have said to ourselves, boy, Jesus sure is opening himself up to a lot of germs. Being out there in the dust all day long and then coming in and sitting down to eat without washing his hands. But that's not what's going on here. The word ceremonially at the end of verse 38, ceremonially should clue us in to the fact that physical hygiene was not exactly what this Pharisee was so concerned about. To the Pharisees and the Jewish lawyers who had gathered in this home for lunch that day, Jesus' problem was not physical hygiene, it was spiritual hygiene. In other words, whether or not Jesus was going to have germs on his hand, this Pharisee was concerned that Jesus might be ceremonially unclean or spiritually unclean. And his thinking goes like this. This is how these men, the Pharisees and the lawyers, thought. Though the Bible nowhere proposes this idea, they thought that people like Jesus and people like themselves who went out and spent their days walking around among common people would get sin clinging to their bodies almost like the dust clings to our feet on a dirty day when we're walking in sandals. They thought that as you walked around the world, sin literally would cling to you and that it needed to be ceremonially washed off with water before you ate so that its pollution would not enter into you 
clinging as it were to the vegetables on your shish kebab or to the crust on your bread and therefore making you yourself sinful. Now that was one of just many rules and regulations that these Pharisees and lawyers had added to the far more simple instructions of the Bible. And peculiarly, virtually all of the instructions that they added were about merely outward things. And there was a good reason for that because outward rules are easier to follow than inward ones, aren't they? And because outward rules are far easier for people, other people, to notice and, and to clap their hands for, to praise us for as well. And that's exactly what these men wanted to do. They wanted to create for themselves a code of ethics that they could meticulously keep and that would enable them to congratulate themselves and to feel like they were really doing well before the Lord and that would make them appear inordinately pious before their fellow men. And so they created all these rules, and one of them was this ceremonially washing of the hands. And this is what Jesus nailed them for in verses 39 through 41. He said to them, You're so concerned to polish up the outside of your stainless steel coffee pots that it never occurs to you that the inside of those pots are caked with coffee grains, rotten grains. It's possible, in other words, to really clean yourself up on the outside. Jesus is saying, and inwardly still be crusted over with sin. They had it just the reverse. They thought you could be clean on the inside and that the sin would cling to you from out here. And he says, no, it's the other way around. You get yourself all cleaned up and you do all the right things outwardly, but still the inside can be rotten. And that's the essence of Jesus' criticism here of these Pharisees and lawyers. They cared far more about outward religious appearances and ceremonies, most of which weren't even in the Bible, than they did about matters of the heart, which are of paramount importance all throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. They cared far more if we could bring it into the 21st century to have on the right church clothes and to have the correct prayer lingo and to make sure that they were seen putting their offering envelope into the plate as it went by. They cared more about these kinds of things that they, than they did to show charity, verse 20, or 41, to the homeless guy standing on the corner beside the UDF or to the young girls who are being deceived into aborting their babies or toward the sex slaves in Bangkok. That's what these men were like. As long as I can be seen at the church service and do all the things that make people think I'm really godly, then that's enough for me. And therefore, says Jesus, something is desperately wrong with him. And he spoke to them six Woes, beginning in verse 42. Six woes to the dinner guests that were gathered that afternoon. Three of them directed to the Pharisees, who were the strictest religious group among the Israelites in that day. And then three more woes to the lawyers, who were not so much litigators in the judicial system as we would think of lawyers. These lawyers in the New Testament are quote-unquote experts in Jewish religious law both religious laws that came from the Old Testament and especially, it would seem when you read about them, religious law as it came from the man-made traditions that had begun to cling to and obscure the Old Testament like barnacles. So we need to take a look at the six woes that Jesus pronounced on the most religious people of his day and see if they don't offer us at least some warnings. Those of us who are among the most religious people of our own day. 
So we'll begin with those three woes to the Pharisees. You can see them clearly, I think, one in each verse, verses 42, 43, and 44. And the first is this, if I can summarize it. Woe to those who have religion without love, verse 42. Woe to those who have religion without love. Now, Jesus already touched on this idea in verse 41, but now he expands on it in verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. Now, that's a strong indictment, but it may hit close to home, especially, again, among a religious crowd. Jesus questioned whether these men really loved God and whether they really loved their neighbors and were willing to work for justice on their behalf. And in order to show them their hypocrisy, he hit them right where religious people often like to pride themselves, on the issue of tithing. Many of us may be tempted to pride ourselves on the fact that we pay tithes of all we get, as the Pharisees said. And we pay on the gross and not just on the net. In fact, we may be just as meticulous as these Pharisees were who tithed even the produce from their herb gardens. And Jesus says, these indeed are the things that you should have done. But, Jesus seems to be saying in this verse, that's the easier part of religion. That's the easier part. In other words, it's much easier to set aside 10% of your wages to put in the offering plate than it is actually to really love God and your neighbor. Why? Well, because anyone can tithe, whether they love God or man or not. Tithing, as good and as vital as it is, at its root level requires nothing more than a few good financial habits and somewhat firm of a will. If you have both of those things, you can do it. So tithing is, or at least it can be, merely an outward thing for many people, which is probably why the Pharisees were so good at it and why some people today like to talk about how they do it. But to love God and to love your neighbor, on the other hand, requires more than just a firm will and some good habits. To love God and to love your neighbor requires a soft heart and a tender conscience and sometimes a sweaty brow and a messy schedule. It's much easier for most of us who are regular churchgoers to drop a check in the offering plate than it is to be a good Samaritan to someone who may cost us a good deal of time and money on top of the tithe that we already gave. We know we're supposed to tithe, so we do it, but it doesn't really require us to be moved necessarily. But it's precisely because we aren't moved sometimes that we're able to casually and callously walk past hurting and lost people. And this, Jesus is saying, is hypocrisy. You can do the easy things that people notice, but you don't love your neighbor and you don't love God. Why do we pay tithe anyway? Do we do it just because we're supposed to? Or because other people will notice when we put our envelope into the plate? Or do we do it because we love God and we love His work and because we love people and we want our money to go to help them? Well, we're supposed to do it for those latter reasons, aren't we? Of course we are. But if we don't really practically love God and love our neighbors when we have chances in so many other ways to do them good, then we prove that when we're tithing, we're not doing it because we love God and our neighbor. 
We tithe in that case just because we're supposed to, not because we really want to serve God and love people with our money. Because if we really wanted to serve God and love people with our money, if we really tithe out of love for God and man, we love those people in all those other ways as well. Therefore, we need to hear what Jesus says. This you should do, but don't neglect the other. And hear that well for a couple of reasons. Don't neglect the other, but hear that he says this you should do. It's not that tithing is wrong. Jesus makes that clear in in this verse. The problem, again, is when our tithing is not accompanied by other more time-consuming, more personal, more hands-on, less robotic ways of loving God and our neighbors. Tithing is the thing you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So we ought to tithe and visit the sick. We ought to tithe and care for the widows. We ought to tithe and be about witnessing to our neighbors because we love them and we love their maker. We ought to tithe and house the missionaries. We ought to tithe and love all those little children that will be here for vacation Bible school in a month. And the list could go on with the main point being this. Outward, easy religion, things like tithing, church attendance, and so on, are hypocrisy if not accompanied by practical love for God and justice-seeking love for our neighbors. Referring to Paul's stirring words at the opening of 1 Corinthians 13, you know that passage, if I don't have love, I'm like a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Referring to that passage, the Scottish professor of Hebrew, John Duncan, said this, if you are without love, the church bell is as good a Christian as you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Woe to those who have religion but have not love. And then he says, secondly, woe to those who have religion without humility. Verse 43. Woe to those who have religion without humility. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Now, again, if we could just put what he says into 21st century terms, he's saying to them something like this. You love it when you walk into the church building and people start getting up and offering you their seats. He says you love it, Pharisees, when they go into the back room and get an extra chair so that they'll have a place for you on the platform. And he says you really love it when you walk into Finley Market and people start coming up to you and wanting to shake your hand and have their picture taken with you and offering to carry your bags. And that kind of thing was apparently happening for these men. Now, I know that doesn't happen to any of you. It certainly doesn't happen to me. Times and cultures are different now than they were then. But the principle is still the same. Isn't it true that we as Christians sometimes have our own ways of imitating the Pharisees? Maybe had Jesus written these verses in our century, he would have said something like this. Woe to those of you who love special recognition when you've done something good at the church. Woe to you who love seeing your name printed in the platinum donors section on the wall of the local Christian charity. Woe to you who love to have your name called during the Sunday announcements because of some service you performed. Woe to you when you intentionally put your offering envelope in the plate face up so that your neighbor will see how much money you gave to the Lottie Moon offering. It's easy even in subtle ways, to turn our involvement and our service, our religious service, into opportunities to receive respectful greetings and public recognition. Or at least 
if we didn't originally do it for that reason, it's easy to get bent out of shape on the backside when we look back and realize nobody even said thank you. But Jesus says that's hypocrisy. Why are we doing what we're doing anyway? Are we doing what we're doing because we'll get a certificate of appreciation or a round of applause at the end of the project? Or are we doing it for God's eyes, for His appreciation, for His well-done, good and faithful servant? To do anything at all for public recognition is exactly backwards if you're a Christian. And for several reasons. Think it out. First, aren't there a great many other people who have been just as faithful as we have? Isn't the church one body which needs all of its parts, 1 Corinthians 12? Then why should I need or deserve special attention? Or think about this. Isn't God the one, really, who deserves the praise? Apart from Him, I can't do anything, Jesus says in John 15. So shouldn't I be like Joseph, who when Pharaoh commended him for his spiritual gift, said, it's not in me. God is the one. Genesis 41. Or think about it like this. Doesn't the gospel itself teach me that I'm not actually worthy of commendation no matter how much I serve the church? Isn't that what the gospel says? These people who who shower praises on me, they just don't know how sinful I really am. They don't know how dependent I really am upon the shed blood of Jesus and His constant intercession at God's right hand. And so let me not exacerbate their misunderstanding by craving their applause. Lots of reasons why we shouldn't do what we do for men's praise. And the issue of religion without humility does come back to the gospel, doesn't it? Am I really in this Christian thing because of something I have achieved or is it because of what Christ has achieved for me and in me? That's always a good question that we should confront ourselves with when we are craving people's praise and attention. If we can confront ourselves that way, then we can slip quietly into the middle of the congregation without anybody noticing or greeting us. Then we can serve without any desire to be applauded or commended for it. Then the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. So woe to those who have religion without gospel humility, Jesus says. Thirdly, he says, woe to those who have religion without purity. Religion without love, religion without humility. Verse 44, religion without purity. Woe to you, he says, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. In other words, people would never know it, but you're dead inside. He says, Pharisees, you hide it well, but your hearts are as foul and contaminated as the soil of a shallow grave. So once again, Jesus is waylaying these Pharisees for the fact that their religious outward appearance was mere hypocrisy. In verse 42, their outward public act of tithing contrasted starkly with the fact that they were actually heartless and cruel. In verse 43, they loved outward praise more than they pursued inward humility. And here in verse 44, their outward appearance of religiosity hid the fact that like dead man's bones, these men were actually unclean and were defiling to those around them. Now that's what the Old Testament says about dead bodies. People were not to come into physical contact with them under Old Testament law because those dead bodies would actually make a person ceremonially unclean. You can see that, for instance, in Leviticus 21. And therefore, back to Luke 11, to conceal a grave 
or to leave a grave unmarked could be quite a sinister thing for someone to do because someone might happen upon a box of bones without realizing it and become defiled by them before they realize what they were handling. And that's what Jesus was saying was true of the Pharisees and the way their outward religion actually hid the fact that they were a real danger to be around. Those who came into contact with the Pharisees, those who came under their influence, were often defiled, just like people who came into contact with dead men's bones. They were twisted into heartless, cruel, unclean individuals, often without realizing what was happening to them. And that's what Jesus is saying. You look really good, but you kill people. And again, the problem was that the Pharisees only cared about the outward trappings of religion. They tithed, yes. They went to all the services and sat on the platform. They wore religious robes and even put little bits of paper with Bible verses on them into boxes on their wrists and on their foreheads. So people looked at these men and they said, wow, this must be what it means to be godly. But if someone actually began to try and follow God in those ways, if someone imbibed the religion of the Pharisees, that person would eventually become worse than they were before because the Pharisees had wicked hearts despite all their outward paraphernalia. Read through the New Testament and you'll find they were cruel and merciless. John 8, 1 through 11. Picking up the stones to, to kill this woman caught in adultery. They didn't love their parents, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 7. The money that they should have been using to support their parents in their old age, they said, oh, we'll put that in the offering box again so that people can see us. They were arrogant. Luke 18, the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And if they were anything like the other religious leaders of their day that we saw in the story of the Good Samaritan, many of them would have been stringently racist as well. And the worst of all of their problems was that as bad off as they were, they didn't have the common sense and they didn't have the open eyes to see it. They thought they were doing quite well. They thought that by their own efforts, they were righteous in God's sight. Their outward form of godliness had concealed from others and from themselves the fact that they were in their hearts actually filthy and defiled and unclean. And they serve as a warning to us of how easy it is to assume that because we're at the services and because we read our Bibles fairly often and because we tithe and because we have some role in the church that we fulfill, that everything must be well with our souls. Not necessarily so. Jesus would say over in Matthew 23 in a parallel passage that our outward religion no more proves that our souls are clean than those beautiful bronze doors on the mausoleums at Spring Grove Cemetery prove that behind those beautiful doors would be a beautiful spot for a picnic. Those doors are there for a reason, aren't they? And so are the caskets inside them. They conceal something, something that no one really wants to see. And if we need our church going and our tithing and so on to conceal something, to hide the fact that we're unclean in our hearts, then something's desperately wrong with us. Our souls 
behind those religious doors must be rotting away like dead men's bones. So woe to those, Jesus says, who have religion but inside are impure. Woe to those in all three verses whose religion is far cleaner and far more beautiful on the outside than it is in the heart. That's the essence of Jesus' critique of the Pharisees. Outward religion profits nothing. But then let's turn to three woes to the lawyers. Three woes to the Pharisees, and then beginning in verse 45, three woes to the lawyers. Now when you read the the passage, it appears that it's possible that at the end of verse 44, Jesus had said all he had intended to say. But some poor lawyer in verse 45 had to go and put his foot in his mouth. Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. And he must have expected Jesus to say, you know, you're right. I shouldn't just lump you lawyers in with the Pharisees. Please accept my apology. But instead, Jesus says something like this. You know what? I shouldn't just lump you in with the Pharisees. In fact, I've got something to say to you too. Woe to you lawyers as well. Perhaps not what the shame-faced man was expecting Jesus to say, but the lawyers, remember the Jewish religious experts, the seminary professors, if you will, came in for just as strong a critique as did their spiritual cousins, the Pharisees. And once again, Jesus had three things to say to them. So number four, if we're keeping a list of six woes, woe to those who do not practice what they preach. Verse 46, woe to those who do not practice what they preach. I think that's what Jesus is getting at there in verse 46. Now here's what he says. Woe to you lawyers, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now in one sense, what the lawyers were doing was what they were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to be experts in Old Testament law. And therefore their task, part of their task, was to teach that law to the people. And apparently they were doing that, but they were with the way they were going about that task. And the first was, as Jesus says, that they were teaching people, what they were teaching people was actually a burden to those people. A burden to them. Why? Well, not because the law of God itself is a burden. The Apostle John says God's commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3. So why was what they were teaching a burden? Well, because the lawyers' teachings, like we said already, were filled with these constant additions. Their own traditions, their own interpretations of the law of God, and then they treated their additions, their traditions, and their interpretations as though those things were law themselves. So, for instance, while the fourth commandment clearly teaches that a man should not go to his place of secular employment on the Lord's day, nor do any other heavy work around his house on the Sabbath, the lawyers added to that a big long list of their own interpretations of what that meant. How heavy was heavy labor? How far could you walk to get to synagogue on Saturday? Does personal hygiene count as work? All these kinds of questions that they ask that the Bible doesn't address. So much so that when a person got through with all of the lawyer's instructions, he was more weary about the Sabbath than if he'd just gone to work all day. And that's what Jesus is saying. And there are people who do the same kind of thing today. 
They take God's laws and then they interpret them and apply them and then they make it as though their interpretations and their applications are the same thing as God's law. For instance, it's amazing how people can take the Bible's simple and broad commands about how we should take care of our bodies and work them into big, thick books about what Christians can and cannot eat. It's unbelievable. Or how people can take the Bible's straightforward warnings about drunkenness and make those things far more stringent than the Bible actually makes them. And the list could go on and on and on. But here's the thing. We're all tempted, aren't we, sometimes to take the Bible's commands, which are simple, to add our interpretations and our applications and then to tell other people what we think as though our interpretations and applications were almost a part of the commands themselves. And that's what these men were doing constantly, weighing men down with burdens hard to bear. So the lawyers were off base in what they thought, in that they added heavy burdens and unnecessary rules and regulations on top of the easy yoke of God's law. But here's the main point. They also erred in that, as Jesus says, they themselves, verse 46, were not willing to carry the burdens that they laid upon other people. You yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So here, I'm going to put this heavy burden on you, but I don't need that burden on me. I'm a lawyer. I'm one of the elite. And so they didn't practice what they preached. Now, I'm sure they thought they practiced what they preached. But apparently they had created some sort of system of loopholes or good excuses that allowed them pretty much to live however they pleased. And I say they taught everyone else what they themselves should be doing, but were not willing to do it for their own part. Now that critique has significance for each of us, doesn't it? Even if we're not like the lawyers tempted to teach things that are in addition to the Bible, even if we are telling people things that are biblical, many of us find ourselves stumbling in that while we teach others, we found ways to excuse ourselves or to circumvent the law for ourselves. We don't always practice what we preach. And that indictment applies especially, of course, to preachers. You should pray for me in that regard. But it also applies to Sunday school teachers, to people who have the opportunity at work and at school to tell others what the Word of God says. It applies to parents who teach their children God's Word on a regular basis. Do we actually practice what we preach to other people? For instance, this is a hard question for me to pose, but I, I'll pose it. Is it okay for Dad to complain about the food because loophole... He's the one that pays for it. Is that okay? Is it okay for mom to watch shady things on television because loophole, she's a grown-up? Is that okay? Is it okay for the pastor not to tithe because loophole, well, I tithe my time, and a lot of the money's going to come right back to me anyway. We do those kinds of things all the time. We tell our neighbors, our coworkers, and our children what they need to do, but then somehow it doesn't always apply to us. Particularly, we tell our neighbors, I hope we tell our neighbors and our coworkers and our children that they need to repent of their sins and seek God's forgiveness in Jesus. But do those people ever see us in a repentant state of mind? 
Do those people ever hear us seeking forgiveness from God and from those whom we've harmed? Are we as humble as our creed says we should be? I think you get the drift. All of us are prone not to practice what we preach. And woe to us, Jesus says, if we do that. And then notice, fifthly, that Jesus says, Woe to those who do not practice what the prophets preached. Woe to those who do not practice what the prophets preached. Verses 47 through 51. If I can just try to summarize what Jesus is saying there as succinctly as possible, it would be to say this. Though these lawyers venerated the Old Testament prophets, even building monuments at their tombs, verse 47, they stood condemned because in their lifestyles they followed in the footsteps of the men, verse 48, who killed the prophets. So Jesus says, you can venerate and celebrate the prophets all you want, but if you don't do what they said, you're really no different than the people who killed them. And verses 49 through 51, you stand condemned. And actually, Jesus says, your adorning of their graves proves to be more of a memorial to what your wicked forefathers did to the prophets than to what the prophets actually stood for. So here we have men who venerated the heroes of the past, but by their behavior, they proved that they, had they actually lived alongside those heroes, they would have hated them as much as their fathers did. And once again, we see their hypocrisy. Just to help you understand what's going on here and how goofy what they were doing really was, let me put it into a modern illustration. Because we're just as hypocritical in our country as they were in theirs. Although our heroes aren't on the par of Elijah and Moses. We routinely celebrate year after year the founding fathers of our nation. And Abraham Lincoln in our country is routinely voted the best and most popular president of all time. However, were Lincoln or Washington alive today, they would never be elected to political office because of all their talk about God and the Bible and so on. And yet people are in Washington adorning their tombs, building far greater monuments than these people ever thought of building, and yet we have effectively buried what those men stood for. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, only it's a lot worse because it wasn't just their political and national history that was on the line. It was that plus the Word of God itself. But lest we make the mistake of merely pointing the finger at our godless culture and not at ourselves... Let me remind you that Christians do this same thing with our history. You hear Christians talk many times about the good old days when the churches were full and the streets of our cities were far different places than they are today. And there's truth to that. But sometimes the reality is that while we may pine for the good old days, the people who actually lived in the good old days, if they could come into our living rooms, would be embarrassed by some of the things that they see us watching on our televisions or on our computer screens. They would come into our churches and wonder at how little modern Christians pray and how many gimmicks we've introduced alongside the gospel. And that's Jesus' point. It does no good to venerate the heroes of the past and to pine for the good old days if in our lifestyles we're not imitators of them. We're the reason why it's not the good old days anymore. So I commend history to you. I encourage you to read history and biography, especially about the saints of old. There's great encouragement to be had there. But don't read about Lincoln or Spurgeon 
or Wilberforce or Jim Elliott or Amy Carmichael simply so that you can memorialize them and be amazed at what they were like. Read so that their God will increasingly become your God. Read so that their gospel will increasingly become the strength of your heart. Woe to those, Jesus says, who remember the past but who do not learn from it. And finally, Jesus says, number six, woe to those who do not preach so that others can practice. Woe to those who don't practice what they preach. Woe to those who don't practice what the prophets preach. But now, in the opposite direction, woe to those who do not preach so that others can practice. And that's in verse 52. Simply put, the lawyers that Jesus is addressing were so caught up in all their self-made jots and tittles, in all their multiplied rules about how far one could walk on the Lord's day or whether picking a few heads of grain for a snack constituted working on the Sabbath, that no one could get any help from these men. The people's eyes were glazed over listening to these lawyers. Maybe some of yours are right now as well, which means that I need to hasten on. But... But more than the fact that they confused everybody and were unhelpful in that way, even if someone could stay awake, even if someone could understand everything that these lawyers were saying, it would only lead that person further away from the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying there. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter and you hindered those who were entering. What they taught kept people from entering the kingdom of God because what they taught was the antithesis of the gospel of grace through faith. So they effectively took the key of knowledge away from the people and in doing so kept many people back from entering the door that led to eternal life. They told them you can be right with God by what you do. Just follow all these rules. That's not it, is it? And they kept people out of the kingdom. Now again, this passage is primarily a warning to people who teach on a regular basis like myself. But it's also a warning to those of us who with our family and our friends and our co-workers and our classmates find ourselves perhaps always talking about rules and regulations and jots and tittles, none of which will ever bring those people to the knowledge of salvation, rather than showing them the simple law of God and the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Just to make it more simple, if our good news is simply quit drinking, quit smoking, take better care of your kids, stop supporting the social left-wingers, and get in church, then we've fallen into the trap of these lawyers in verse 52. We've taken away the key of knowledge. That's what a lot of people think Christianity is, isn't it? And they don't get that from nowhere. People are taking the key of knowledge away from sinners by majoring on the minors and sometimes majoring on things that aren't even in the Scriptures. And none of that will save people. None of it, even unlike the actual laws that God has laid down Himself, will even convict a man that he needs to be saved. We need to give people the law of God simply and clearly so that they see they need to be saved and then give them the gospel of God so that they will be saved. But if we just give them all of our jots and tittles, then if the people are not utterly repulsed from the get-go, then what they will end up with is a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality which can never save a person. So do you see? What people need is not another list of rules. Certainly not a list of rules written by ourselves. 
What they need is to be confronted by the simple but high and holy standards of Almighty God. They need to be shown what God says is the good way so that they should walk in it. And they need to be shown that there is a Savior for people who, like themselves, have not done it. That is the key of knowledge that Jesus speaks about. The simple law of God that brings a man to see that he needs a Savior and the gospel of God that gives him that Savior. And we can either give people that key of knowledge or we can hide it beneath the sofa cushions of all kinds of legalism. And woe to those, Jesus says, who do the latter. Woe to those who hide the key. Now before we finish, we need to look very quickly at the aftermath in verses 53 and 54. What happened after Jesus gave this speech of woe? Well, what happened was what you would expect to happen when someone looks a group of people into the eye and says to them six times, woe to you. The audience became very hostile, verse 53, and they began to plot against him in verse 54. Now, I hope that your reaction is not the same this evening. You're angry. Although if you are, may God use it to eventually break your pride and bring you to himself. But I hope rather that for most of us, our feelings are not so much of hostility, but of conviction. In other words, I hope you're not angry, but I hope you're not happy. I hope you leave tonight having been convinced that what I said at the beginning was true, namely that we religious people are particularly prone to hypocrisy. We are prone to have outward religion without love in our hearts. We're prone to be proud because we are religious. We're prone to have pearly white reputations on the outsides, but to be stained and dirty behind closed doors. We're prone to say one thing, to preach one thing, but to live far below what we preach. We're prone to remember our Christian heritage fondly, but to erase it by our contradictory behavior. And we're prone to obscure the good news with all of our personal opinions and agendas. Has God convicted you in any specific area this evening, perhaps? I've prayed that he would. I've prayed over each of these areas, and I've prayed that everybody that would be here tonight would sense God saying, here's a weakness that you need to address, or here's a sin that you need to repent of. But, but what will you do? If God has convicted you, what will you do with the conviction? We were talking about this passage in the car last night on the way home from the softball game, and John made a good point, namely that it would be possible to hear a message like this one and to feel the conviction that we ought to feel, and yet still to leave living quite like the Pharisees and the lawyers. And why is that? Well, Because, remember, these men thought that by pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and doing all the right things and keeping the list and checking everything twice, that they could save themselves. And though tonight hopefully our vision has been corrected, that is, though we have been shown this evening that the Pharisees' rules and regulations were false and damning, though we've been shown a better way of integrity and love and humility and purity and so on, we could still come away tonight on the wrong track, still come away thinking that it's all about a list. It's just now we have a different list, a better list than the Pharisees had. Even though we're not trying to do all the ridiculous things that the Pharisees would have had us do, we could leave tonight with the right set of laws and commandments in our minds and yet thinking that now 
if we'll just try a little harder and do a little better, everything will be fine. And that was the same mistake that the lawyers and the Pharisees made. Doesn't Paul say that by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight? Romans 3.20 Even the works of the correct, good, biblical law which we should obey, they cannot save you because though you try hard to do better, you will never do well enough. It's not that the law is bad, it's that you cannot keep it and neither can I. So yes, we should try harder. We should leave tonight doing better, but we cannot try hard enough and do well enough to erase the past, can we? So it's not just about a list. Before we get to the list of the right things that we should be doing, we need to come with whatever weight of conviction God has laid upon us by His Holy Spirit tonight, and we need to drop that burden at the foot of the cross. We need to admit tonight, before we do anything else, that though we know a better way than the Pharisees knew, we still have not walked in it as we should. That's what conviction does. It first drives us to the Savior for forgiveness and cleansing. And we also need the Savior tonight to give us strength to do what He commands in these verses, don't we? It's not just about being forgiven and then forgetting about the commands. No, we need to be forgiven, but then we need strength to keep the commands because it's easy, remember, to talk about love. It's easy to talk about humility. It's easy to talk about purity. It's easy to talk about faithfully evangelizing people and practicing what we preach and so on. It's easy to talk about practicing what we preach, but it's not so easy to practice what we preach, is it? The only way that we can is when the new life that is offered to us in the gospel comes to reside in us. That's the only way that we even begin to approximate to what Jesus is asking of us here. So let's leave tonight, yes, resolved to be different than the Pharisees different than the lawyers, and indeed different than we ourselves have been. But let's also leave with the words of repentance in our hearts and on our lips. Let's leave tonight fleeing to the Savior who can forgive us our hypocrisy and who can help us to practice what we preach.